You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the blacklist. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR's breakfast on Saturday. And uh, we've got a little bit of stuff about climate. You can't get away from it. But uh, before we do, uh, we'll have a little bit of uh, stuff about the Uluru Statement of the Heart because the whole of last week, uh, as the new government uh, took the seat in uh, Canberra, there were a lot of people there uh, lobbying for change and uh, the uh, there were a whole range of things that actually did actually fall into place. Uh, one of the things that fell into place was the uh, announcement that there will be a referendum around the enshrining of a voice to Parliament for Indigenous people in the Australian uh, constitution. Anyway, we'll get onto that in a while. So that was one of the reasons why I thought we'd uh, have a look at that. Uh, we also saw uh, a change in um, what is happening in terms of the climate. There was a passing of the 43% uh, reduction in emissions uh, by uh, 2030. Uh, now, that good, bad and different, uh, there seems to be a general belief that uh, it's not enough, but uh, that it's uh, a beginning after 10 years of recalcitrance. Uh, uh, and um, I was listening to a fascinating uh, thing that was uh, put on by the uh, Australian Security Climate Group. You may not even know that they exist, but apparently these people have been pushing for a very long time and being ignored for at least a decade because they began in 2008 and it's a a group that's full of uh, very well-known and very conservative uh, uh, people in, in, well, I don't know if they are conservative, but they're people who are well known to the mainstream, as in, for example, Ad- Admiral Chris Barry. You can't, you couldn't, uh, he used to be the uh, head of the Armed Service, uh, Australian Arm, uh, Armed Services. Anyway, uh, uh, anyway, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, just a little bit from that particular event because these people are talking uh, our language, I'll have to say, when it comes to what's going on in the climate. It's one of those sort of horrible feelings where you where you say, um, I told you so. Uh, and uh, get a bit of uh, uh, you know it's it's not it's not a it's not a good feeling to be on the right side of history 
<laughs> when it comes to uh, uh, disastrous climate outcomes. But anyway, there you go. Uh, so, um, so it wasn't just us who were uh, upset by the uh, foolishness of the past federal government. Um, so there you go. So we've got a little bit of that stuff, but and uh, we've got a little bit of stuff from the recent climate capitalism and the future event. We've got uh, Zelda Grimshaw. She's going to. I'm going to play Zelda's piece. She's from Blockade Australia, and uh, it's a sort of a, a first-hand experience of a activist uh, on the cl- uh, climate fight. But before we do. There's a little bit of news. Uh, you may be aware that there's a major dispute going on uh, between uh, the people who work for SITSA, the towage uh, company, uh, a company that's owned by a maritime, the world's largest maritime conglomerate, um, AP Muller Maersk. Uh, they, the three unions that are involved in uh, maintaining uh, tugboats, this is the Australian Maritime Officers Union, the Australian Institute of Marine and Power Engineers and the uh, Maritime Union of Australia. They're the three groups of people that work on those uh, towage, on, on the tugs. This is a, an absolute uh, uh, groundbreaking event in the sense that these three unions very rarely uh, would work together on something of this sort, and in fact, the um, the rarity of the engineers going out is uh, extraordinary. This is so. These three unions representing maritime workers employed by Spitzatoich have written to company managers, inviting them to return to the negotiating table to avoid litigation next week in the Fair Work Commission. But the company, a local subsidiary of Mertz, has set a course towards industry industry disputation, disruption, and uncertainty by seeking to cancel its employment agreement with tugboat workers at every Australian mainland port. Now, what they do is, because they work in an incredibly dangerous uh, field, I mean, it's not like anybody and everybody can um, battle the seas in order to bring monolithic uh, uh, tankers into port safely. I mean, mean, it's not like... uh, it's just an extraordinary thought that uh, these people are being told that they will have all their negotiated over 40 years of negotiations uh, thrown out and uh, that Mertz is, uh, Switzer is looking to uh, uh, throw them all back onto the modern award, which would actually cut their pay by about 50%. Uh, and also casualise the workforce effectively, uh, pushing these people to have to work uh, un- unrealistic hours at the whim of the employer. This is exactly what they're after doing. And this is why there is, in a, in uh, yesterday, the uh, MUA uh, in Victoria were out for 24 hours and there's going to be rolling stoppages. And uh, it was uh, the... Um, the officers' union, in particular, are targeting Mertz tankers, refusing to uh, bring them into port. Uh, so this is an ongoing dispute. Uh, it's uh, firstly they want them to come back to the table 
because what Mertz has been doing or what Switzer has been doing is um, manipulating the uh, Fair Work uh, Act by uh, over three years. They've been um, refusing to actually, using various uh, delaying tactics to refuse to actually negotiate properly. And now they're going to go to uh, the um, commission saying that they want to tear up the agreement completely. Uh, three years ago, they almost had uh, an entirely ordinary agreement again that was rolling over, uh, but then they put 30 more uh, it's a tactic. It's, and as uh, um, we'll do a full report on um, uh, Stick Together next week, uh, as it was pointed out to me when I went down to the uh, meeting that was held, uh, it was a Zoom meeting with uh, all all the members across the country, uh, that uh, what uh, they're doing, what uh, Switzer, what the uh, company, uh, global, Spitzer Global and uh, Mertz in particular, what they're doing is trying to sew up the uh, entire uh, industry internationally with uh, slave uh, wages and um, insecure work. Now, as it was pointed out to me uh, yesterday, that uh, if we do not have uh, changes in this area, this, they will be these companies will be going to across Australia. This is a touchstone um, dispute, and uh, if you hear anything uh, on mainstream media that uh, castigates the uh, workers, uh, don't believe a word of it. Don't believe a word of it, I tell you. Um, this is a very uh, disturbing uh, set of... Um, uh, I mean, these incredibly skilled workers, you've got a company that's making billions and billions of profit and they are just squeezing the lemon to such a degree that it's now shattered. And uh, it's you'd say that uh, capitalism as a leviathan is now eating its own tail and eating the babies as well. Um, on a, a smaller scale, but uh, not smaller for the workers, up at readings at uh, Carlton Ligon Street, ten to twelve, they're covered by the workers are covered by RAFU. Uh, they were promised an above four percent wage increase by readings, but readings reneged and are now offering a wage freeze for two years at two percent. And of course, there's at uh, ten o'clock today. Uh, there is a stop work and uh, they're encouraging people to go and listen to what they've got to say, 10 to 12. Now, of course, uh, you can, after that, you can go down to the State Library at 12.30. Uh, no more Hiroshima Peace, Peace Not War rally for Nam Melbourne is on at 12.30. Uh, never forget. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, there you go. Uh, a few important announcements. Uh, then we'll get on to the day's dealings. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. 
The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narn. Entries by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narn. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridor Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And that's the truth, you are, and you're with Annie, and uh, we're on 3CR Breakfast. Now we're going to move on to Europeans' place in this continent's history. I know that uh, quite often uh, this is described as an issue of Indigenous peoples' place in this continent, but uh, the issue of a referendum to enshrine a voice to Parliament of the Indigenous people in the Australian Constitution is much more about uh, Europeans' place in this continent's history. The Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was the inception of this referendum, has been awarded the Sydney Peace Prize. The Sydney Peace Prize is an internationally recognised prize and it uh, is conferred in November. Um, And uh, last week, the Australia Institute had a webinar featuring Pat Anderson and Professor Megan Davis. Uh, they're, uh, they're two people who are uh, deeply involved in the uh, proselytising for the Uluru Statement of the Heart and uh, a referendum. Uh, here's an excerpt from that session, uh, and you can hear a lot, the lot of the Australian Institute's uh, uh, webinar on their U. YouTube channel. This is just a little bit of a backgrounder for people who are wondering what what the whole thing's about. Uh, Pat Anderson, I want to begin with you today. Before we kind of get into that task ahead with the referendum, uh, I wanted to ask you about the journey to get to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's a remarkable invitation, one of the most important documents in Australia's history. But I'm not sure everyone's aware of just how much work went into um, getting that statement and, and all the consultation that happened. What was the process that led to the Uluru Statement from the Heart? Before I get to this recent process, we've been doing this since before 1840. Every generation of us has had a go uh, at getting us to be acknowledged and accepted and respected 
as the first peoples of this beautiful continent of ours. We've been here, the latest figure I read, over 100,000 years. It's commonly said to be 65,000, but of course that's what the scientists say. But for us, we believe we have always been here. We didn't come from anywhere else. This is definitely, absolutely our place over millennia. Um, this current process, though, began with Julia Gillard about, I don't know, 12, 12 years ago. Um, we've had, Megan will be able to correct me, I think we had like eight committee, committees over this period and the final process, well, the process that we have on the table now, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, came from the Referendum Council, and which Megan was a part of, as was Noel, and I co-chaired with Mark, Mark Liebler. We went out and asked First Nations people how they wanted to be recognised and what do they need now at this time. And through a whole process of 13 what we call regional dialogues all over the country, um, we had an, a deliberative process designed and led by, was designed by Megan and led by, by all of us. There was no public servants. It was just us plus the people that were invited. Now, the Referendum Council didn't invite anybody to, that, to those forums. We selected a host organisation. Uh, we, told, we gave them the formula for who should come. Don't forget we need to have women as well as men and young people and that we want 60% to come from um, the, the, the traditional custodians and landowners, 20% from organisations and, uh, and also um, stolen generations, people that perhaps didn't fit into the categories, and also 20% of um, people who are important um, to the region and, and influential. So every meeting had that same structure, if you like. It was um, two and a half, nearly three days, and we had them in 13 locations. Each of those meetings the head, the host organisation was to also invite people from, from the region. So it was an educative pro, education process as well, um, over three days. It was, a, it was a deliberative process and required uh, everyone uh, a lot of work and people worked really hard, sometimes on abstract concepts. Uh, each meeting uh, was um, recorded and then from we, we've selected all those um, notes and remarks and everything that people said and the conclusions that they came to after a three-day process and the team then, Megan and her team, did analysis um, of everything that was said. We presented that document at the convention or each meeting um, was asked, the last duty was to select um, six, seven people from that meeting to go and be their delegate at the convention. So the Referendum Council didn't um, select, elect anyone except choose a host organisation. So the delegates that came to Uluru um, were sent uh, by all of those meetings to be their delegate and to speak on their behalf at the convention. From the convention and that whole process came the Uluru Statement um, from the Heart. And this was decided by that meeting to give this as a gift, a gift of hope, peace, even love to the Australian people because people told us in the dialogues that we asked the population, the Australians, in 1967 to help us and we're going to ask them again and they'll help us because there was a widely held belief that Australians were basically decent people. So that's why it was very much on purpose because it's you, everyone out there and everyone else who isn't here, it's you who can change the nature of the country, can change the narrative. You have the power, um, not the, pol the politicians. You have to set the machinery up. And there's been a huge ingredient 
that's been added to this whole process, this latest one of 12, 14 years, um, by the courageousness, the courage rather, of the Prime Minister, who's the first thing he said as a Prime Minister, that he would take, um, the, meaning that he would take the country to a referendum. And at Gama, which was just an amazing gathering of all kinds of people, he made the announcement of a draft um, set of questions. So, and the only thing he's got to do, well, he's got to do lots of things. We all have lots of things to do. But nevertheless, we are definitely, as all Australians, um, we're going to a referendum and we're going to be asked to vote yes or no. Very simple question if you've read the questions, the drafts. Have a look at it. There's only two possible answers, yes or no. That's it. So that's where we're at now after this very, very long process. But everybody over 18 um, in Australia today has the opportunity to, this is part of um, nation building. It will change the narrative for the country and hopefully it will change the way that you all relate to us and we will have some power to make decisions about all the things that affect us and try to fix this torment of our powerlessness. That's where we're at now. Thank you, Pat. Megan Davis, coming to you next, um, and congratulations to you both on on getting it just to, to this point where we are on the cusp of, of having a referendum with this uh, this question to be put to the Australian people. But the statement um, calls for voice, treaty and truth. There are those two other elements. Megan, how important is the, the sequence of those elements? How important is it that voice comes first? Yeah, so... Um... The, the Uluru Statement does refer to uh, the constitutional element of a voice to parliament and then uh, a Makarata commission to supervise agreement making and truth telling. So um, the sequence, you know, is important in, in a number of senses. The first being that, you know, the past 12 years, um, I mean, it really depends on what, where your starting point for the recognition process is. Some take it as the preamble um, in the Republic referendum, so 1999, and really the multi-party support for a referendum on recognition started then. Um, some take it as John Howard who who committed to a constitutional referendum on recognition in 2007, um, about four days before the um, federal election in 2007. Um, and um, But most, I think, take it from the point in which Julia Gillard was able to negotiate um, power in the lower house through uh, the two independents, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott and the Greens, um, Adam Bands. Um, in their letter of agreement with Gillard, they said that she needed to move on this multi-party support for constitutional recognition and get the nation closer to a referendum um, or to a referendum was in the terms of reference. Um, so that, that kind of... Um, that started in 2011 and so we're in our kind of second decade of recognition in Australia. A lot of work has gone on, um, seven processes, ten reports. There's a lot of material there for that decade. Um, but the, the, the opportunity on the table, Ebony, is for constitutional recognition. So treaty and truth aren't things that are done at that constitutional level. Um, although we took truth, our treaty out to the process, the deliberative dialogues, um, you know, the movement has always anticipated that there would be some kind of mechanism at a Commonwealth level um, for agreement making. But in this instance, um, the opportunity on the table was bipartisan, multipartisan support for constitutional recognition. And so through that deliberative dialogue process, 
the form of constitutional recognition that came to the fore as the most prominent was um, a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament. So, so that is first because that is the opportunity on the table and that is in terms of political imperative, that kind of multi-party support, um, keeping in mind the, the complexities of the current situation as we are um, getting to um, closer to a referendum, um, that is what is on the table. Uh, in terms of agreement making and truth telling, it was always envisaged that that would be done through some sort of mechanism that en enables those two things to come together. Um, and so they, the Makarata Commission will be set up. Um, I'm just not sure at what point. I think Linda Burney has discussed setting it up now, setting it up after a referendum. I mean, those, those decisions are made by political, by, by the government of the day in terms of resources. Um, but um, the, 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 the sequence is really important. And I, and I just want to make one point about truth-telling. Um, you know, there is no significant... There's no treaty in the world that needed a truth process first, yeah? So truth-telling is something that has been um, really prominent post um, kind of the 1990s when we had this emergence of a transitional justice framework in the international community to try and grapple with the way in which you have regimes move from kind of dictatorship to democracy. And how do you deal with all of those issues um, as so that people can live you know, who were once, you know, victim and perpetrator can move to the new democratic um, uh, uh, society and, and those issues that occurred in the previous regime would be dealt with. Um, I think the very strong sentiment in all the dialogues is we've done a lot of truth-telling in Australia. Um, in fact, it's been used on multiple occasions by the state to avoid substantive recognition of rights. Um, and I take, for example... Bob Hawke not being able to deliver on national land rights or on a treaty that he promised, um, but rather because he couldn't do truth-telling, um, sorry, because he couldn't deliver on substantive rights, he kicked the nation down into a decade-long period of truth-telling. Um, and we emerged out of that decade-long with a Conservative government who rejected it all. So um, truth-telling is important, but the dialogues didn't really use that language of truth. They, used, they talked about Australian history. Um, they talked about their place in Australian history and what can be done in terms of um, education for in primary schools and high schools to educate Australians better on, um, on the place of First Nations people in Australian history. Um, so I think um, it's really important to keep in mind that this isn't a transitional justice truth-telling process. This is about the original grievance, um, something that occurred in 1788 and that hasn't been dealt with. And it's really important not to impose really modern day things like that across that original kind of grievance that we're trying to resolve um, uh, with this first step through the Uluru Statement. So the sequence is really important. Um, and, and certainly from our discussions with our brothers and sisters in Canada, they've had four truth telling processes and are saying it has elicited no substantive change in community attitudes towards First Nations peoples and race. And as someone who's worked with the United Nations for 20 years, I think we do need to scrutinise this idea that education is the, the sole, public education's sole way um, to, to, to get Australians to a place um, 
you know, where where they might vote yes for a treaty or they might vote, vote yes for something else. I mean, I don't think, I think we need to problematise the idea that you need a truth-telling process before this because we've, we, we've got plenty of evidence of the truth in this country. Truth is not what we're short of. Um, so that's the importance of the sequence. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast on Saturday, Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we're going to uh, acknowledge the passing of a very important person, a very sad uh, moment to be able to say that Archie Roach has died, has passed. And um, uh, over the past week, there's been commemorations of his great talent and his great spirit, uh, the man himself, uh, and uh, I just thought that just uh, to doff my hat, uh, we will listen to a little interview. It's only short. Uh, we'll hear his voice. The beauty of radio is its intimacy. Archie is being interviewed in 1988. Archie, listening to your songs, they're very personal statements. The first song that I sang was about when I was taken off the mission that I'm from and how I was brought up in institutions. It was definitely about my, my life and my childhood then. What sort of feelings do you have about that now? Now, it's, it's just um, because it happened. Uh, I'm angry because it happened. But what I feel about it is that people have to be told. You know, I think these my songs, I'm trying to get a message across to people what actually happened uh, to me, not just to me, but to um, other Aboriginal children as recent as the 1950s. What sort of music did you hear when you were young? Well, when I was young, I suppose I, I'll go back to the time when I, uh, I left my foster parents, I suppose. Uh, most of the music that I was listening to then, or that I heard everywhere, especially it was always associated with Aboriginal people, it was um, country music, and uh, I'm very influenced by country music. I still play country music, but I've, it's just like I've taken uh, a break from that to uh, write these songs and to perform them. What sort of reaction are you getting from audiences? Quite overwhelming, really. Uh, I've heard the, the uh, feedback that I'm getting from certain radio stations or certain people that I've played to. They're saying that people are ringing them up, asking for where, where they can buy my tapes and, and records if they're on some sort of independent label or something, and I haven't gone that far yet. I'm just um, singing my songs uh, to whoever will listen. What about within the Aboriginal community itself? Yes, well, I suppose it's easier because a lot of Aboriginal people can identify with what what I'm singing about. People about my age can certainly identify with um, times when they were taken away from their family. So within the Aboriginal community, it's, it's received very well. I wasn't sure how, how they'd sort of take to this song because they, they were so used to me singing things like me and Bobby McGee and, uh, and Jambalaya 
and all of a sudden I'm coming out with these songs with a bit of <laughs> a bit of meaning to them, and uh, not that uh, Man by McGee doesn't have any meaning, but you know something that's from me, and uh, I wasn't sure how they'd react at first, but uh, now they're starting to get used to it slowly. What about a song like Beautiful Child? You mentioned to me earlier that it's a very new song. I only wrote actually. I only wrote that a couple of finished it a couple of nights ago. It, it's always been in my head, you know, and in my heart. There's been a lot of controversy about about the um, the issue of, of deaths in custody. But I sort of just sort of wanted to get away from the political part of it or what's been said in the media. And I took it from a parent or especially a mother's point of view and how it really affected her because it was her child, nobody else's. You know, it didn't belong to the media. When you started singing your own songs in public, was it very hard to get up in front of an audience and sing songs that are obviously very close to you, you know, things that you're very emotionally involved with? Yes, it, it was. I, uh, I found it hard to sing one particular song one time... Uh, because it was very emotional for me. Just recently, when I was um, singing at a certain place, in a venue in, in uh, Fitzroy, when I finished up, I said, uh, I had to finish up with a country and western song, Jambalaya, to uh, liven it up a bit, you know, because I was, I was, it was emotionally draining for me. I suppose that's the only way... You know, it's good that I can put that into my songs because, uh, you know, it was what, what happened... The brightest of stars Couldn't match your sweet smile But you grew up too soon Far beyond your young years Now all that remains Is your memory and tears You were always to blame and they put you through hell Then they locked you away In a dark, lonely cell But you weren't really bad Just a little bit wild Now they'll hound you no more Oh, my beautiful child But you always came back With your head held high And so proud to be black But the last time they came 
When I took you away That you'd never come home Yeah, they pushed you around Cause your skin wasn't white And although you were gentle You learned how to fight And you fought all your life No, you didn't fail But you deserve better Than to die in some jail Ooh, beautiful, beautiful child G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. And you with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And uh, we're going to move on to uh, the event that uh, we had, uh, Stick Together and Uprise Radio, put on on the 23rd Saturday. Very successful event. It was at the uh, Black Spark Cultural Centre, which is up in Northcote. Um, and if you haven't been there, you should drop in and have a uh, look around. It's uh, full of books, full of uh, good cheer. And uh, on that uh, particular event, Climate, Capitalism and the Future, Zola Grimshaw gave us a, a perspective of uh, fighting for climate. Uh, she's part of uh, Blockade Australia and uh, this is uh, what she had to say. So on that, I'm going to start with an exclusive we, and I'm going to talk about the experience of Blockade Australia um, and the repression that we, as part of the Blockade Australia network, experienced in Sydney recently. I'm sure you all saw it on the news. It was insane. Um, in fact, it was. I, I did some of the media, and it was it was fun to see the media quoting me, calling the police insane over and over again in the clips. Insane police. Um, did the rounds, so that was satisfying. Um, but it was a really horrible experience. So, um, you know, they were certainly persecuting us. Like, there's no bones about it. It was a concerted persecution um, that revealed just how far so-called Australia is prepared to go to protect its extractivism. Um, you know, 250 police were tasked with finding us, following us, arresting us, um, monitoring us, surveilling us. I mean, they helicopter buzzed our press conference. They arrested people at bus stops and charged them with obstructing the Sydney, Sydney Harbour Bridge when what they'd actually done was participated in a public march on a street arrested someone and charged them with um, conspiracy to commit a crime and then held them in jail for more than three weeks because they'd used a whiteboard. 
um, arrested somebody else in their car for having um, pens in their car as a graffiti implement and charged them with possession of a graffiti implement. Um, we felt hunted. Um, I was in the media space, so I was not with most of the people, but every time I stepped out of the... Even in the media space, it was like our bodies were on high alert all the time. What was that car? What were those footsteps coming up the stairs? You know, are, are they listening? Are they watching? And we, we went around Sydney like this, right? you know, because of facial recognition and because people were getting picked up at bus stops and train stations. Um, so that experience of repression, um, it's not surprising, but it's still shocking in the way that... And even if you're used to your partner hitting you, it still shocks you when they do it. <laughs> it was shocking in that kind of way that, yeah, it's predictable that Australia will um, heavily repress any individual or group of people who they think pose an actual challenge to the exploitative and destructive practices that they carry out. Um, but it was still deeply, deeply shocking, and I think it gave all of us in Blockade Australia just a little window into the type of persecution that, that many people of colour experience in other parts of the world. And it, it, and it gave us a, just a little fraction of the experience that First Nations people must have had in this country since 1788. And it's horrible. I mean, it's just horrible. So I feel like for all of us, and I think I can speak collectively here about Blockade Australia, it's really deepened our empathy for other people who um, have suffered persecution and repression. Um, and I think the backfire effect on the on the police and on the state of Australia is, is going to be powerful. And I think we've already seen it starting to happen. It has galvanised a type of solidarity that Blockade Australia hasn't experienced before now. Um, so that's really fantastic to see and may that continue... So I'm going to move into the inclusive we now, so I'm going to speak about us here in this room. Um, I don't think I need to tell anyone in here that the wrong Amazon is burning. Um, for a while, um, I mean, climate and climate destruction and capitalism, colonisation, they're all, they're the same beast. Um, for a while, people were calling the sort of system of interlocking oppressions that exists uh, the chiriarchy, um, which was kind of handy as a term, but it didn't really take off. So I usually refer to it as the um, climate-wrecking, capitalist, patriarchal, colonial, extractivist, um, misogynist, military-industrial death machine... Um, <laughs> but it's quite long, so for shorthand, I'm just going to talk about it as the death machine. So um, what I want to talk about today is not the death machine and the way it works or why it needs to be opposed, because I feel like we're already in that movement. What I want to talk about is the movement, and I think it is one big movement. So that's how I see it. We're all in one big movement against the death machine. And whether you are a mental health worker who tries to help sane people cope with an insane world or whether you're someone who tries to prevent patriarchal violence um, or whether you're someone who's out there blockading bulldozers, for me, you're part of the movement that's against the death machine. 
So uh, the NGOs, I'm not quite sure if they're allies in the movement or if they're kind of disabling um, apologists. I'm just a little bit undecided about that. Um, so when I talk about the movement, I'm actually really talking about the grassroots movement, which is, uh, I think is who is in this room. Um, I do work for an organisation, but um, it's not even an entity, actually. It has no legal status. Um, and when I think about the future, on the one hand, I'm fucking terrified. I'm absolutely terrified. I mean, climate collapse is here. It's not somewhere into... It's here. It's coming. And we are going to need each other. In one of my recent Blockade Australia posts, I wrote, solidarity is the currency of the future. And I really believe that. I really think we are going to need each other. And the solidarity that we build now and the networks that we can build now are what is going to enable us to survive the climate apocalypse and is going to enable us and already enables us to rebuild, build the shell of the new within the old, which is some of the things that Colin um, has has spoken about, some of the immediate practical steps that can be taken, um, certainly in the union movement and for all of us. But I find solidarity often lacking in the left. Um, there's a toxic culture that permeates the left. And I think that that toxic culture is part of our capitalist framework where we vie for supremacy in a competitive way, like my ideas, my ideology is better than yours and I'm going to exclude you because you are not completely on point. Um, so everybody hates everybody. You know, like the socialists hate the other socialists, the anarchists hate the other anarchists. Um, everybody hates the NGOs, and maybe that's reasonable. I don't know. I'm not making an assessment there. I mean, I've heard people talk about Extinction Rebellion as middle-class people performing their grief. And it's like, well, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's all that XR does. Um, but even if it were true, I'd rather they were out there doing that than shopping, you know? And people talk about school strike for climate as young people who've been co-opted by an NGO and who are now therefore worthy of contempt. And uh, even if they have been co-opted by an NGO and even if it's that, that's true, uh, baby doesn't have to be quiet, it's okay. Um, even if that were true, I'd still rather those young people were turning up to the Prime Minister's house and yelling at him than at home playing Xbox. So, and when I look at the youth and Blockade Australia is, is driven by youth, like there are a lot of people of my generation and, and much older than me involved, um, but the core strategists are young people um, and you see this in the Black Lives Matter movement in the States and we're seeing it in other countries as well, that there are, there's a cohort of young people who are behaving in ways that more... Um, that older generations or more, um, I guess, moderate um, activists see as beyond the pale. Um, they're cursing. They're yelling at the police. Um, they're maybe doing doing acts of sabotage, or you know, in some way, they're using tactics that um, older generations or, or mainstream generation mainstream activists don't approve of. So, I want to really ask you, um, all of you who are mostly my generation in here. Um, and and 
with empathy for the young people in here, to look at the humanity of our young people. I mean, these are people who are terrified. They have got a lot of skin in this game. You know, so they are, and they are furious, and rightly so, and they are grieving for the future that they won't have. So when we see those young people out there yelling at the police in a way that we don't think is maybe very comfortable for us, I want you to really exercise your compassion and see their humanity and lift that humanity up high. So as Blockade Australia... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, as Blockade Australia, um, I'm just speaking inclusive, exclusively now again, as Blockade Australia, we've copped a lot of criticism from others on the left about, you know, tactics that weren't the best possible tactics. So I want to say, if you feel those things, please come and speak with us. Please don't put those criticisms online where they shame us and where they divide us. Please come and speak with us. So we're holding a series of info talks on August the 6th. They're all over the place. There'll be one in here in Nam. Um, I think there's one in Ballarat as well. There's a whole lot of them going on, about a dozen. Please come to one and engage with us. And if you've got better tactics, please bring them, because we'd love to hear them. And before you tell us why our tactics are wrong, maybe ask us why we're using those tactics. Maybe come with a question rather than a criticism, as your first approach. And I think that that's something that can be applied across the left and across activism in general. Before we go slamming and shaming each other, maybe we can come with curiosity, oh, why did you think that tactic was a good idea? And if you really do want to criticise, please do it offline. Um, I've got, have I got a bit of time left? Because I'm about two-thirds of the way through. Um, not a lot of time. Not a lot of time. I'll try and go fast. So <laughs> we can come back. The first time I heard um, a grown-up speak about anarchism, I was about the age of these young people here, um, and I asked those grown-ups, what is this anarchism that you're into? And they said, um, anarchism is a world where the economy is based on love. <laughs> so... As a grown-up now, myself, with grown-up children, I, I still believe that, I still feel that. And I'm not talking about a hippie, kind hedonist, let's have an orgy love, although um, you know, that sounds like a good idea too. Um, <laughs> I am talking about love as solidarity and solidarity as connection, not as something transactional. I give you five solidarity and you give me back five solidarity. I solidarity with you because you and I are fundamentally the same. We are the same. We are of the same earth. So when Christianity and Islam both sort of swooshed through the world and destroyed the earth religions, which they did as part of often colonising states coming in, um, they're trying to erase indigenous cultures along with the earth religions. And what's fantastic um, about hearing from people like um, Robbie today, who I don't call uncle because Robbie's my generation, um, is that they failed to do that. The earth religions survive. Indigenous knowledges survive. 
And they teach us that we are not separate from Earth. We are not separate from other species. And we are not separate from each other. And it is that connectedness that is the basis of solidarity. I'm with you because you are me. I am you. We are part of this same big struggle against the death machine. And that idea that none of us are free while one of us is chained. So another phrase that inspires me, um, and this came out of um, uh, Valerie Cower, who's um, written a book called See No Stranger, is that revolutionary love is the call of our times. So when you think about revolutionary love or when you think about solidarity, I want us to try and think about it as more than something transactional and about something that actually enters the spiritual realm. And I know that's really weird for us because we're mostly people who don't ever go there, but I think we actually do. And I think it's in any connection that uplifts you when you are in nature. So when you're out in nature and you see a magnificent tree, there is something thrilling about it. When you see a waterfall and you feel the spirit of that water, that is the old earth religion that is in you, that is in your body, it is in your ancestral memories. And that is the connection that I think forms the solidarity that can get us through. You also see it in the communal spirit, I call, which happens when you're in blockade camps. So I've been to all three Blockade Australia mobilisations and each time I experienced this communal spirit, I experienced it at the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance that was on in Mianjin last year where... Just being in the space uplifts you. Everyone's kind of like buzzing. And it's this community of people where the love is really, really free. It is like a community of people who are already doing whatever they can to share what they've got and to support each other. So I think about that as something that is a spiritual uplift and that is solidarity. And then you also see in a more prosaic level the mutual aid that spontaneously springs up when there's a natural disaster. After the huge floods we've had recently and after those terrible fires, there was this upswelling of mutual aid by ordinary people, not activists, not leftists, no ideology perhaps in their brains, no idea that what they were doing has been theorised as mutual aid, but there they were, doing everything they could to protect and support each other, even risking their lives to go out on boats and to go into fires to save others. That is what we are made of as humans. Like, we are not what the capitalist world teaches us that we are. We are not dog-eat-dog machines. We are people who are deeply connected with each other and with our earth. I'm nearly done. So <laughs> I think with that idea of communal spirit... What gives me hope for the future is that I sense that the world we need is already here in our hearts. It is in our bodies, it is in our ancestral memories. And I'll finish with a quote from John Lennon, a paraphrase of John Lennon. Sorry, baby. Um, Revolutionary love is all we need. Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A weak solidarity, Breaky Team listener, when 
here in True Blue Aussie, a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030 was passed. All they have to do now is work out the how of all that with no commitment to prevent the fossils extracting more and more fossils. An interesting equation. While caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer's temperature rose by much more than 43%, nearing Giza proportions, as he denounced this major threat to the fossils as a stunt for which we'd all pay. While coming up with that most practical and sensible solution to a problem he knows is not a problem anyway, replace fossil pollution with nuclear fallout, nuclear pollution. Well, not exactly replace, add nuclear pollution to fossil pollution, the best of both worlds. That'll teach the long-haired commie greeny lots for seeking a solution to a non-problem. And the increasingly revived and strident nuclear industry voice never mentions what used to be the little problem of what to do with thousands of years of radioactive waste. So obviously they've solved that problem. And Pete has turned his radioactive desires to nuclear power plants, which would be up and running at about the same time as the nuclear submarines he was extolling a few months ago and turn out to be just as cheap. Practical Pete, we should call him. Nuclear subs to launch the nuclear war on evil China, Pete knows is the only solution for democracy to prevail on which the temperature certainly soared much higher than the 43%. More like several hundred percent as the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world speaker Nancy Peloso Smart defended democracy in Taiwan, the evil China Island to which the reactionaries fled or, (coughs) sorry, the good guys fled as the evil communists took over the mainland and declared, that is the good guys, declared this little now good, good democratic Chinese island was China. And the rest of China was not China, just evil. But now Nancy has has had to defend democracy, defend capitalism against um, against um, well against capitalism. Oh, but evil capitalism so powerful it poses a threat to the hegemony of the home of democracy, the U.S. of citadel of real democracy and good capitalism. Nancy, who on the U.S. of political spectrum is seen as moderate, so it was moderate provocation. Sadly, her commander-in-chief was unable to comment on Nancy's defence of all that is good, as two days after coming out of isolation, he was back in isolation, one of the fastest relapses in COVID history. And to make matters worse, evil China decided it was time to undertake a bit of evil live ammunition train-killing practice off Chinese Taiwan. Just like the good live ammunition train-killing exercises, the U.S. OB undertakes off Queensland with our very own True Blue Aussie train killers. As part of their invaluable contribution to the 43% target, the great fossil behemoths, anxious to help us all, attacked attempts to force them to put the local market first, pointing out this would cause untold tragedy for its international clients, and the solution was simple. Force governments like Victoria to open up their gas to, um, to, to, well, to them. 
the same companies who would gladly carry out their social responsibilities like extract it and make a killing, both financially and environmentally, but also necessarily, because we can't have international clients losing faith in True Blue Aussie. And on the financial killing, the same poor dears are fighting off suggestions that throughout the so-called energy crisis, they have been making a financial killing, gaming the market, as they say. How such unfair allegations must hurt great corporations who show such sense of concern for the planet and its inhabitants. Their case was endorsed most logically by global financial behemoth KP on the planet MG, global head of energy Regina Mayo, a real name, who came all the way from Houston to advise us we have no choice but to extract as much coal and gas and oil as we can because... Uh, well, because, because, well, it seems, oh yeah, that there's a quid in it, a few trillion quids in it. Her logic hit its heights with this piece of irrefutable advice. I don't believe the planet can cope with no new oil and gas and no new coal because we still have a society that demands energy. Indeed, how can we cope without them? And yet... The long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden work in an iron lots run the ridiculous argument, how can the planet cope with them, with oil and gas and coal? Who do we believe, listener? The long-haired, commie, greedy lots or a respectable KP on the planet executive from Houston, Texas? It's a no-brainer. Why does no-brainer remind me of Constable Duffer? But it wasn't just Ray's poor Constable Duffer's temperature week and Ray's train killing temperature week. It was also homelessness week. And once again, Trubler was he celebrated by making sure there is plenty of it. And there'll still be plenty of it in homelessness week next year. It's been a couple of big weeks, a couple more of big weeks for state caring business class supremo and would-be big state supremo, the lobster with a mobster, looking redder than your average spectacularly overpriced lobster, after he had decided to play the small target policy trick and agree to match the pejorative Dan lot on emission targets, which, incidentally, are higher than the 43% his federal leader, Constable Duffer, says will destroy life as we know it. Agree. So what did his party do? It selected a new candidate from the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs who not only doesn't support reducing emissions, he doesn't believe in climate change at all. Oh dear. Same day after the lobster with had got rid of Bernie finished, after Bernie said not even rape victims should be allowed to have an abortion, the child shouldn't, you know, like, pay for its parents' crime, showing Bernie knows women ask for it, although he may not be aware that not too many male rapists get pregnant. Anyway, the party then chose a woman to replace Bernie. Good start. Except a woman who holds exactly the same beliefs as those on those issues as Bernie. Just as the lobster with was gathering his breath and trying to explain all that, party democracy, that sort of crap, along came his chief of stuffing up, stuffing up, embroiling Paul Lobster with in an embroglio over political come personal donations, Lobster with being referred to the Integrity Commission. 
poor lobster with. Four months to the election, perfect timing. Making the lobster wit the best thing going for the pejorative Dan. The Caring Employer Award of the Week to appropriately named Josh Foreman, real name, supremo of a mob called Indebted, described as a fast-growing fintech startup that has digitised debt collections. Debt collectors, that most honourable of professions. Anyway, Indebted was named Tuberwazi's best place to work while announcing a doubling in value to more than $200 million, which it celebrated by repaying its best place to work staff in kindness. It sacked, or sorry, sadly had to let go 40 of those workers, for them the best place no longer to work. Meanwhile, multinational delivery giant FedEx, which has about 5,000 True Blue Aussie workers, plans to go gig. See, Amazon is competing by employing contractors, giving these workers the exciting feeling of knowing each one is a private one-person corporation, forced to deliver one parcel per minute or thereabouts, and with no award wages to worry about, and FedEx says it must do the same, contract workers who own their own van to work under the same slave or, sorry, fun, fun, fun conditions, the fun compensated for the for the miserable wage they will receive for their enjoyment. And showing its lack of concern for poor multinational giant FedEx, the bloody evil union says the solution is not to join a race to the bottom in wages and conditions led by Amazon, but to ensure all workers are employed under award wages and conditions. Doesn't this show how far evil unions are removed from the difficulties facing caring employers? It's, It's not like FedEx or Amazon, for that matter, would enjoy having to rip workers off to achieve their massive obscene profits. We may have to concede that Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect giant mind omniscient columnist Andrew Bolt through the head is spot on. The ABC is riddled with leftists bent on attacking all that is good about our neoliberal white Christian society. There's no doubt there's a mole in there doing just that. We know for the past couple of years the Classic Station has had listeners forming an online choir singing a Christmas song. The first one two years ago was written by soprano Deborah Cheatham. Well, this year, maintaining that Indigenous connection, and Andrew and Lord Rupert know how racist that is, Indigenous connection, they've chosen the music to Oh Christmas Tree, with words that include a number in Indigenous languages. The, the left connection, I hear, if that isn't already left enough. Well, obviously... The music, which comes from the classical repertoire, is also the tune of, wait for it, the red flag. The people's flag is deep as red, it's shrouded off our martyr dead. Shoving some socialist, commie, long-haired, greeny mole in the ABC, with thousands across the country singing the tune, is into subliminal brainwashing, subliminal agitprop. Let's hope Andrew wakes up to this latest commie plot as soon as possible. The consistency of the week award to Constable Duffer and the team who cut the fuel excise as petrol prices soared, but announced it would be restored in September. No ifs or buts, because we couldn't afford not to restore it in September. And the then socialist opposition agreed. Well, now that the caring business
business class hayseed and cheap shit coalition is in opposition, they are demanding the heartless socialists not restore the excise and exercise inconsistency. Pete, your consistency of the week award is on its way. Finally, with his sensible nuclear solution to match the fossils, we can be sure Pete will be out on the streets today marching along with thousands commemorating Hiroshima Day, the great peace-loving US of the only country to resort to nuclear warfare, which we can be equally sure Pete will tell us shows just how evil are evil China and evil Russia. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. That's uh, This is the week that was. Packs a, a mighty punch, does Kevin. And uh, we're going to finish off the program, 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, by uh, finding a group of people who would find uh, Dutton's position on climate and energy quite a, uh, a worrisome affair. And you'd think that it would be an activist organisation, but it's actually the... Uh, Australian Security Climate Group, and uh, they have been tasked with the job by with the new government to do a climate audit for the nation. Their particular um, <laughs> uh, event that they had was uh, uh, actually uh, called. Um, <laughs> let's see if I actually wrote it down, uh, but it was. Uh, basically a, a term that gives one the impression that uh, we're running out of time. Anyway, this is a little excerpt from that particular event. Uh, first up is Dr. Robert Glaser. He's from the Australian Strategic uh, uh, Strategic Institute. Uh, and uh, it's followed by a little word from Admiral Chris Barry, who's a member of the Australian Security Climate Group. Um, anyway... Uh, be scared, be very afraid. I guess just to first highlight how much our domestic environment has changed. Some of you may not be aware that last week, all of virtually all of the Indo-Pacific chiefs of the defense forces met in Sydney. Uh, and the very first item on the agenda for those discussions was climate change. So that's a huge, that's a huge uh, uh, and refreshing change to see that that is so prominently featured now in a meeting co-hosted by Australia and the United States. Um, I was uh, asked by Ian to to comment on some of the risks of undertaking a climate impact uh, assessment, the, the risks of conducting the assessment itself, the mistakes that could be made. And some of them were actually highlighted by Daniel, but I'll, I'll just run through these very briefly and happy to get into more detail during the discussion. Um, so there, there may be five that I'd highlight. Some of these are quite general, some are more specific. The first is a tendency to view national security too narrowly. And, and I should say, I don't think the team that's currently leading this risk assessment is, is, uh, is, is going to make this mistake, at least in any significant way. There's absolutely no doubt that climate change is going to have enormous impacts on traditional security issues, impacts on the defense, Australian defense forces, um, including uh, threatening military infrastructure and readiness, and also exacerbating tensions in places that are already military hotspots like the South China Sea, 
where um, sea level rise is amplifying disputes over maritime boundaries and, and fisheries as well. Um, but as I think Daniel pointed out in the Chatham House study, the most pressing regional security threats are not going to be coming from these traditional national security areas, but they're more likely to be uh, linked to disruptions in social systems and particularly the food, water and energy nexus. And the latest IPCC report, that's the UN uh, reports uh, produced by the best scientists in the world that focus on these problems, has, has particularly highlighted that nexus as, a, as an area of concern, food, water, and energy security. Um, and um, it will, it, for us, for Australia conducting a risk assessment, it means when you consider issues like food, water, energy, trade, health, biosecurity, it becomes pretty clear that uh, any risk assessment that is essentially managed and involving the traditional security departments, whether it's defense, uh, ONI, foreign affairs, home affairs, is going to fall short because clearly these issues are issues that affect a whole broad array of government agencies that need to be involved. A second related issue is that we can't, a risk assessment shouldn't underestimate the domestic links. The review also needs to consider the links between climate risks originating outside of Australia and domestic impacts of climate change. And um, if, if it does ignore that, then it's, uh, it's overlooking the possibility of initiatives such as the one Brendan O'Connor mooted during the campaign, which was that Labour might uh, establish a national... Uh, civilian disaster response force to free up the defense force to meet what uh, he also saw was intensifying military threats abroad, more traditional military threats. And so any risk assessment that is focused too narrowly on on the outside world, the risks that are emerging outside the world are missing the connections between the domestic uh, response with defense as you, as as everyone or everyone in Australia would appreciate, is increasingly becoming engaged in these national scale disasters that climate change is contributing to significantly. A third pitfall is to underestimate the systemic nature of the climate change threat, and that's one reason maritime Southeast Asia, the air, the region, the subregion on our northern border here in Australia, has been overlooked as a climate change hotspot. Most analysis of, um, of climate impacts tend to focus on individual hazards, say rising temperatures, rather than on the fact that many things are happening at once in this systemic change. So, for example, if you look at uh, a lot of the studies that done in the IPCC looked at on climate adaptation, they might focus, a study might focus on how rising temperature is reducing food production but not on the compounding impacts of other hazards like floods, droughts, fires, increase in pests, saltwater inundation, cyclones, big population displacements, how all of these things that are happening simultaneously as the system changes with climate uh, will undermine food security. Um, so it is really important. Um, it, it's analytically extremely difficult to do this. In fact, these systemic disruptions are have have radical uncertainty associated with them 
But if we don't get a grip on this, and there are various ways we can do this, as the Chatham House uh, study attempted to do it, as I'm sure our colleagues in the Australian government will be trying to do as well. But if we don't get a handle on these cascadings, this the systemic change, we're really going to misjudge the true scale of the challenge that we face. I think the review also needs to take account of how rapidly major societal impacts are begin to are going to begin appearing. Um, in effect, the changes are now happening non-linearly. Uh, what that means in terms of human nature is it, it's sort of human nature to assume that the pace of change we've seen over the last 10 years is what we can expect over the next 10 years. But that would be a mistake to assume that because the pace of change is accelerating. And let me just illustrate this with a couple of quick points. Extreme heat events have mushroomed 90-fold, 90, 90, over the past 10 years relative to the 30 years from 1950 to 1980. Uh, so a huge dramatic increase in the scale of that increase will continue as the climate continues to, to warm. And just to give you one other illustration of this, severe one in 100 year floods are very rapidly becoming annual events in many parts of the world. And that's particularly the case in maritime Southeast Asia where sea levels rising at the fastest pace globally. Um, so you have, with just a 10 centimeter change in sea level, increase in sea level, you have what was a one, one in 100 year event becoming a one in 33 year event. And we're on track for something like uh, 50 centimeters by 2050. The pace of that change is even faster, as I mentioned, in the tropics and in Southeast Asia in particular. And so we will see these one in 100 year events becoming annual events very rapidly in little more than a decade that will start happening in places like Indonesia. Now, um, the prime minister Albanese said uh, at least, or the, the, uh, the shadow prime minister Albanese said during the campaign that this review needs to be completed within about four months. Now, I suspect it will take a bit longer as it did in the US. Um, uh, in, in the U.S.'s process to do their reviews. Uh, but the government has committed to regularly updating it, and that's a, great, that's a great thing. But meeting a short deadline like that is going to require shortcuts. It will in, increase the likelihood that the teams managing this will take shortcuts. And maybe a fifth pitfall to identify is that the team really has to avoid the temptation to oversimplify the process. It would be unfortunate, for example, if the final resort, uh, report was, in essence, a process that involved developing the shared terms of reference across government and then giving it to each individual department to uh, produce their response to those terms of reference and then essentially collating the result at a whole of government level. Climate risks don't fit neatly into these bureaucratic silos. In fact, if you could put on a pair of glasses that would enable you to see, to enable us to see climate risk, it would be shooting in every direction across multiple government departments, globally, regionally, nationally, and subnationally here in Australia as well. So ideally, the process should begin with, and, and, and Daniel actually I, I noted this in terms of the Chatham House approach, with identifying what are the key national interests we're, we're concerned about, 
And, and then, you know, whatever those objectives are, securing borders, energy security, uh, countering terrorism or violent extremism, any of those things, um, and which will often, many of these key objectives will affect more than one government department, for example. And then those objectives should be the reference point for the review with the relevant government agencies working together to, to flesh out those risks and whole of government responses. So have that integrated at the beginning. I think um, just to maybe finish with uh, an emphasis on our own immediate, the immediate region, the Indo-Pacific, because it is clearly a hotspot of overlapping hazards. If you, if you look at the IPCC work that's been done and a lot of the scientific work, whether it's on sea level rise or extreme heat or decrease in fish catch potential or effects on food, you look at each one of those and you look at the maps of the world that where they're identifying the major impacts, each of them individually are settling on the region to our immediate north, maritime Southeast Asia and Southeast Asia more broadly. So the, it is a hotspot of overlapping climate hazards that in this, climate, this uh, climate change that's increasing non-linearly is going to be profoundly destabilizing in our region. And I should just point out, this is the same region that it is in the arc of fire, the, the ring of fire, which is the most geologically active region in the world. So you have, again, you have these climate impacts happening in a place in a region that is already at the highest risk, geological risk um, from volcanoes, earthquakes. Indonesia and the Philippines account for 80% of global volcanic risk, just the two countries. So a huge challenge. Uh, these are just, so I just wanted to highlight a few of these um, pitfalls to avoid. I'm confident that many of them are being avoided and I'm hoping all of them will be avoided as part of this initial really critical attempt, first attempt to develop our national risk assessment. Thanks. Yeah, it's an interesting question. The, the study that I think some people have referred to in the Q&A that's just come out about catastrophic climate change has highlighted the need to focus on the fat tail of the risk. And I think all of, not all of the evidence, but a lot of the recent science actually leads us in that direction to focus on that. Because if we look at reasons for concern in the IPCC report, there are a number of categories of reasons con for concern. Every update of the climate science has determined that, though, that we have underestimated the risks in each of those. And so, um, and there are many, many, much science that has recently come out that is talking about the unanticipated well, there's some well-known tipping points, but unanticipated connections between, say, the increase in heat and drought and the outbreak of fires and the links between that and increased greenhouse gas emissions or, um, you know, the methane as well. There's some new studies that have just come out on that as well. So I think the risks, even though uh, if we look at commitments countries have made, it does look, it does seem as though if they carry out all their commitments that will limit warming to just, and I'm putting just in quotes, two to three degrees, um, uh, two to three degrees is potentially catastrophic as well. At least the science is pointing in that direction. Yeah, thanks, uh, Rob. Um, Chris or Cheryl? Ben? Well, I'll have a go if you like. Um, I think the really interesting thing, uh, 
arcing back over uh, a few decades is um, how much more quickly the events that we feared are happening to us. And uh, in some cases, it's not a single event, it's a succession of events over a short period of time that's having a huge impact. And the way I conceive of it is, um, in the in the noughties, for example, uh, we all thought there was plenty of time to, to put in place systems to deal with the issues. Well, frankly, uh, my, my look at the trends tells me there's no time left, that even today, the urgency of the task to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions and try, try to keep uh, global warming to under two degrees Celsius, um, is slipping by with every day. And um, the way I conceive of it, if, if I was unlucky enough to live, let's say, in the flood zone in Lismore or southeast Queensland or in western Sydney, um, it's not going to be very long uh, with a few more of these events and I'm going to get really angry. And so to go back to the point that, uh, that Robert and, and Daniel were making, there are going to be some very significant domestic issues to be dealt with here that need to be addressed. Uh, and I, uh, if I look back, I just say, and it picks up on the point that Robert just made, if you looked at every increasing IPCC report, uh, it gets worse and worse and worse. What we do know is in the early days, we tended to head for the comfortable uh, middle probabilities. We never looked at the most extreme events. And we had the comfort of thinking and we were complacent about the future. That's all disappeared. Uh, and as we rewrite that, um, I, I, think it, I think it's looking very threatening over the next 10 to 15 years. And I just don't think we've got the time anymore to simply let um, a selected group of people in our communities deal with it. Uh, if we don't mobilise our communities to help deal with the issue now, then I think uh, we might be writing a very different history. Yeah, th <clears throat> thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, could I just do another? Well, there you go. And uh, we'll, that's the end of the program. Uh, as I said, that was the uh, webinar from the Australian Security Climate Group, not a uh, mad, bad uh, activist organisation. But uh, coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. Uh, we're going to go out with uh, the last word goes to Leslie Hughes. She was uh, She's from the Climate Council. And this is from another event which was uh, put on by the MEAA, the Media and Entertainment Alliance. Uh, they were uh, talking to journalists about how to cover climate We'll go out with uh, Leslie Hughes, as I said, she's from the uh, Climate Council, and finish up with uh, another piece from Archie Roach, uh, Vale Archie Roach. Coming up next, as I said, Asia Pacific Currents. I'll reiterate two things that I said before and, and then throw in another one. So don't treat climate change as only an environmental issue. It is an environmental issue, of course, but it's an everything issue and you can bring climate change into all sorts of reporting. Secondly, go to the Climate Council and all of those other sources that, that Mickey mentioned earlier. Um, we're here to help you report and report better and to have confidence in reporting. And the third one is a plea. Um, I still get asked at the end of an interview, you know, say the Climate Council's released a media release on a particular topic, 
I'll get rung up by a journalist and then they'll say at the end of the interview, but what do you say to all of those people that don't believe in climate change? Um, I get cranky now when I get asked that. It's a really lazy question and I'll, I often will come back and say, I'll debate climate change when you're ready to debate, debate gravity because the science is clear. Let's stop using words like belief because it's not a religion. Let's stop using words like debate because there isn't a science debate. Do a bit of homework and don't ask that question because that notion of false balance just um, uh, plays into the hands of those who would choose to delay action. When all the trees have gone And all the rivers dried Don't despair You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.